0: This is the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. In the Wicked studio with me today is Wes Olszewski, class of 1987. The Embry-Riddle community might know him best for authoring Clyde Morris, the comic strip that's appeared in the Avion newspaper for more than four decades now. Listeners can find a story celebrating the 40th anniversary of Clyde in the spring 2018 issue of Lyft Magazine at lift.ereu.edu. Wes is a former airline captain and a corporate pilot, and also a best-selling author of more than two dozen nonfiction books. He recently published his first fiction novel, a spy thriller called Invisible Evil. Wes, thanks very much for stopping by today.
1: Oh, it's no problem. Uh, I just saw the big buildings and I turned right. <laughs>
0: All right, welcome to campus. Uh, I'd like to start off today with Clyde Morris. Uh, Clyde himself had quite a career chronicled in your comic strip. I assume he came from an ant-sized high school, uh, but had the means to pay his deposit to attend Emory Riddle. Uh, Eventually, he graduated and took up a career as a pilot. To what degree does his story arc, uh, the last decades, track your own personal experience?
1: Uh, Kind of on and off. Uh, Sometimes I look at my own experiences and I put them in there, but most of the time the cartoon strips tend to write themselves. You uh, look at things that are going on in this crazy business of aviation or aerospace, and the cartoon just writes itself. I don't know how many times the
0: FAA has written my cartoon strips for me. So you created uh, Clydemorris.com in 1999, and that was pretty early as far as comic strips go to get published on the Internet. Uh,
1: Yes, it was. Uh, As a matter of fact, it was a uh, a combined effort between myself and a fellow Embry-Riddle graduate named James Ahrens. James and I got together, and, and he was... Saying, you know, we could really work this on the internet. And James started uh, Clydemorris.com. And we started putting on some work that I had. And the cartoon strip uh, has been in there twice a week ever since.
0: So w- to what degree did going online uh, change your, uh, your workflow? And has digital publishing as well affected how you approach the strip?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it changed considerably because, number one, uh, no longer was I using pen and ink. I use a, uh, a Wacom pad, and I actually use a very old software. Uh, it's called Photo Impact, and it's the, bu- the company's been out of business probably since the uh, early 2000s. So I use that software because other things like Photoshop do too much. They want to draw for you. All I want is something to let me draw lines, and let me fill in colors, and that's it. And then James came up with another piece of software that I took every single keyboard stroke that was on my computer and put it in, in my handwriting. So the font that you see used in the Clyde Morris cartoon strip is actually my handwriting.
0: All right. When, you, uh, when it comes to the comic, do you consider yourself yourself more a comedian or an artist? Uh, I consider
1: myself more of a troublemaker. That's that's what cartoonists do. I mean, ever, ever since uh, Samuel Adams, who was one of the founding fathers, he was a cartoonist. And he was the one that drove the British crazy by drawing his cartoons and having them reproduced and put on posters. And he was the one that rabble-roused crowds that when the uh, redcoats were standing with their bayonets drawn on a crowd, he'd go over and say, somebody go over here and just poke your shoulder into that, get a little blood going. And then we can say, person bayoneted. So, That's the beginning of cartoonists and editorials. And uh, when I was a big Doonesbury fan when I was a kid, and and I decided to do my first cartoon strip in high school, nobody wanted to read them. Uh, My home parents didn't want to read them. Uh, I did cartoons about ants because I flew ants on model rockets when I was a little kid. And I would fly one, have a horrible crash, and then I would do a cartoon strip about how horrible my crash was. If you do a cartoon strip about people and you crash and kill people, Everybody's upset, but if you destroy ants, nobody cares. So I could get as wild as I wanted with my cartoons, and I had this huge portfolio of cartoons. That when I came here for my first trimester at Embry-Riddle in August of uh, 1977, they had a set of motel out by the interstate called uh, the Royal Scottish Inn, or the RSI, in Riddle acronym. And in w- room 182, that was my room. We decorated the room with some big one-frame ant cartoons. A guy that lived next door came over one day after he caught me trying to steal his TV. Well, successfully stealing his TV. Ours blew out, so I just switched them. But anyway, I used to be a TV technician when I was in high school. <clears throat> Anyhow, he came over, and, and he was on the Avion staff, and he said, you know, these would be great in the Avion. He said, do you have any more? I said, I got a whole portfolio back home. He said, well, when you come go to Christmas vacation, bring them back with you. So I brought it back with me. And he literally dragged me up to the Avion meeting and presented this. And I I have always been one of those overphonics kids that I spell everything wrong. So I have to really watch my spelling and typos. And and Clyde Morris helped me a a lot with that, because now I had all these cartoons with all these typos and these bad things written in it. And I had to watch out to make sure that the spelling was correct in the Avion. But this portfolio went around the room, and all the Avion staff read it, and they all laughed. All of them, except with the editor, Ray Katz. Ray Katz went through the entire portfolio, closed it, and never cracked a smile. And then he stroked his beard a little bit, and he said, here's what we'll do. We'll do, quote. I'm making quotes with my fingers. You can't see it on the podcast, okay? But quotes are being made here. Here's what we'll do. You draw your ant life-size, and we'll call it The Adventures of Empty Ripple. And at that point, I picked up the portfolio, and I said, thank you, everyone, have a nice day, and I headed out the door. Two of his staff members, Gene Snyder, who was the Avion secretary, and Keith Colerick, who would soon be the editor, saw the bomb that uh, he had dropped, and they caught me just outside the door. And Keith said, you do your cartoon strip any way you want. He says, how big would it be? And I showed him, you know, it will be about like an 8 by 10, And he says, okay, He says, I'm going to save a spot that big on the editorial page. I'll put some garbage in there. When Katz comes in and reads it for his final read-through before he goes home for dinner on Monday night, he's going to approve it. He goes home, I'm the one who takes the paper to Oviedo to the printer. And I will take out the crap and I will put in your cartoon strip. Once it runs, he can't touch it. And Gene Snyder said, yes, you do it your way. You do it your way. Everybody in that room is thinking the same thing, and I said to myself, "Well, geez, these are the kind of people I want to be associated with." You know, I mean, the Avion motto: "Scam and ye shall receive," and so this was my first Avion scam. So I. Went back to the dorm and I spent the whole weekend doing the cartoon strip. The strip itself was easy. The problem part was coming up with a name. I didn't have a name, so we spread it around the dorm. What would be the name for this cartoon character? And we got the Orville and the Jaeger and the you know Armstrong and there's all these aviation names came in and nothing worked. You know, I, I certainly wasn't going to call him Blario, so nothing worked. <coughs> so I'm on my way on the bus coming back to deliver this covertly to the Avion to Keith Collarick, And as the bus came up to Clyde Morris Boulevard, I looked at the sign and I went, oh, that's it. And I changed the C to a K and I dropped one R off of Morris. And I took it in and I gave it to Keith. And Keith took a pen and added in the extra R. And it became Clyde Morris. And it ran on the following Wednesday. And I thought it was a bomb. Uh, because in those days, when the Avion came out on Wednesday, you'd go into the class afternoon. They, usually papers got out about noon. you go into your afternoon class, and everybody would be there with an Avion wide open, even the instructor up there with an Avion wide open, because that was the first thing everybody looked at. Well, I'm on page two. So I figured, okay, I got here early, and I'm going to watch. You know? so people are coming in with their Avions, and I'm watching. The guy up in front of me opens it up. He looks right at page two and goes right past to the next page, turns the next page, no reaction. He didn't even see it. Look over at the next guy and he opens it up, looks at it, and goes right over to the fraternity pages. Like, oh man, I, just, I thought people would be saying, hey, look at this, see this, you see this, it's, there's, there was nothing. So I was pretty dejected and I went back to my dorm room and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, these guys gave me a chance and I bombed at the cartoon, so, you know, it must suck, so what am I gonna do? <clears throat> and that evening, I got on the bus, it was raining, got on the bus and came back to the University Center here, the UC, which is no longer existing. And the bus stopped in the loop there in front of the UC. And the, when the door opened, I went to step out and laying, I swear to God, this is true, laying in the gutter, cartoon strip up, was an Avion soaking wet. And the guy in front of me stepped on my cartoon strip. Okay? That's tragic. Okay, now, that's a great way to start this career off. So I, and so I went to the Avion meeting. I thought they were going to say, well, nice try, Bozo, but see you later. And they all said, no, it was great. Get another cartoon strip for next week. As a matter of fact, keep going. We we need more cartoon strips. You're being there all the time. Now, Katz never said another word to me about the cartoon strip, ever. So uh, I should say the late Ray Katz. uh, He was killed in a motorcycle accident uh, in the uh, mid-'90s. Anyway, so that was the beginning. Now, what I didn't know was going on in the background, the cartoon strip was a major hit with not only students, but with faculty and with administrators and especially with President Hunt. I lampooned President Hunt in the very first cartoon strip. I lampooned him all the time. And I had no idea that this was, it was taking off, because I would come in and I'd drop him off and then I'd go back to the dorm, like that, just a dorm rat. And then one day I get the visit from May, who was uh, Jeff Ledowitz, the uh, uh, student affairs dean. She was his assistant. And she came up and she said, Dr. Ledowitz wants to see the cartoonist. And I was like, I'm not here. I'm not here. <laughs> sort of hiding behind a magazine. And everybody saw me ducking, and they're like, Well, you know, he only comes in on Sundays, you know, like this. Okay. So she left. I start getting memos in my box. Come to see Dr. Ledowitz. Come to see Dr. Ledowitz. Finally, about a week later, May comes up and she's got my ID picture blown up, and she's looking around the room and she says, You with me. <laughs> and I thought, oh. Here I am. I'm the first one in my family to go to college and I'm gonna get kicked out over a cartoon strip that I wrote. You know, that what oh gosh. And in those days, President Hunt had the power. He could just flick you like a like a bug and you'd be gone, just on his word alone. See ya. Mm -hmm. So I went in to see Dr. Ledowitz and I sat there and he said, I love your cartoon strip and he told me how much he liked it and everything and he said, Oh, by the way, President Hunt is looking for you too. Oh, great. You know, so now the hammer is going to come from the top instead of the middle. So same thing. I'm Getting letters, getting memos, phone calls, and I'm hiding them out. One day I'm coming down the stairs from the Avion office. And, you know, in the old UC back there, there were those big pillars that went to the back door. And I looked, and coming through the back door was President Hunt. Now, I knew that he knows, he knew at the time, all of his students either by name, reputation, face, or all of the above. Okay, that's the way President Hunt was. He had that kind of a brain. I knew he'd recognize me immediately. Got to the bottom of the stairs and went and hit around the back. And I'm like, Oh God! You know, so up against the wall. Oh my like, God! Oh my God! What's it gonna? What's it gonna happen? I like, look and peeked around. He's gone. Cool. So I head off and I'm gonna go get my hot tea in the uh, in the dining room there. Walked in and as I walked past one of those pillars, he reached out from behind the pillar, grabbed me, and said, "I gotcha." Okay. Now you want to talk about pooping a solid gold brick? Okay. Now, this was a boulder, okay? And uh, all he wanted to tell me was that he liked the cartoon strip. And he says, keep it up. You're you're doing good. And it turned out he was my biggest fan. Well, once you had that guy behind you, you have a bulletproof vest on, as long as I didn't do anything, you know, that was horrible. So I was good to freewheel.
0: Right on. Uh, So the strip takes quite an irreverent tone. Uh, You're both a fan of the aerospace industry as well as a pretty harsh critic of it. Um, and, of course, while you were a student here, you were pretty big uh, critical of the administration as well. No. <laughs> so uh, today you there even were, target... There
1: were only three administrators who were actually canned because of me. Okay, only three. Only Come three. On. Uh,
0: so today you even target SpaceX, aircraft manufacturers, major airlines. Um, is there, there a particular strip that stands out in your memory that uh, had the strongest uh, blowback?
1: Oh, uh, geez. There were a, a couple. Um, the one that have the strongest actual blowback. Uh, I did one about uh, a series about Delta Airlines, and I can't remember exactly what it was about, but I know it was about Delta Airlines. And of course, by this time, I have friends that are working at Delta and readers that are working at Delta. And I got the word, Delta Airlines has blocked you from their internal computer. We can't get on there and go to the internet and go to Clydemorris.com. It just says blocked, you know, not accessible. So that became a news story, an aero news network. And Delta unblocked me. And th- at first they sent a message that said, well, it's because uh, we, we, conf- we confused you with uh, the Morris Tobacco Company. It's like, well, if you did that, why didn't you do it six years ago when I started messing with Delta Airlines? No, you just did it now. So anyway, uh, that was the biggest blowback. And uh, they finally recanted
0: So the strip often references what's going on in uh, aerospace uh, news. Sometimes it's as much a political cartoon as it is a traditional comic strip. Uh, How do you decide whether to include a particularly difficult or controversial topic in your strip?
1: Depending on how controversial. Uh, For example, if it's about an air disaster, there's only one place to really go. You want to put it in there and you want to denote it as part of your work. But where do you go? And there are families that are grieving. There are companies that are grieving. The only people who aren't grieving is the news media, and that's where you go to the news media because they always make fools out of themselves during an air disaster. And uh, my favorite has always been CNN for that because it's—they uh, don't know hypergolic from hypersonic. You know, these are hyperactive. Either of those. So that's, that's my favorite one to pick on. But if I find a particular one that's, that's messing around with it, I'll do that. Or I'll just make up a news network and put it in there as just a generic.
0: So how did you uh, handle 9-11? Did you ever reference that in your strip?
1: Yes, I did, uh, several times. Um, the, the first reference was uh, that you, you can't shut us up, you can't turn us off, but you can really tick us off. I don't think I said tick, but anyway, uh, I don't want you to bleep me. And then I did another one where uh, every time you fly, every time you buy, you defeat this guy. And I had a picture of uh, Bin Laden. So I I did that sort of thing for 9-11.
0: So a lot of people had the sense that you were at odds with the Embry-Riddle administration. But as you mentioned, that wasn't necessarily really true. Uh, Jack Hunt was a big fan. And uh, can you tell me about your relationship with the administration with uh, Jack Hunt, John Paul Riddle?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, uh, Jack Hunt and I were really good friends. Uh, That day in the University Center, he offered me the opportunity to, he said, anytime you need to talk about anything, I have an open door. Just come see me. I did that. I thought he gave that to all of our students. He didn't. Years later, uh, probably 25 years later, Dean Rocket told me there were only two students that he knew of that Jack Hunt ever afforded that luxury to, and I was one of them. He won't tell me who the uh, second one was. (coughs) So, uh, J. Paul Riddle, good friend of mine, uh, he attended my wedding here on campus. And uh, Dean Rocket, uh, it was like having an uncle on this campus, actually saved my Embry-Riddle career at one point when I got to a broke the camel's back point with the university. So uh, uh, Jeff Ledowitz, big fan. The people that weren't fans were the ones in the middle. Middle management are always the ones that are the most sensitive and they're also the ones that are the most expendable, so torpedo them.
0: So your wife, Teresa, is an embryo alumna herself, and as you mentioned, you guys got married here on campus during Homecoming 1988. Correct. Uh, what was it like getting married on campus? It was great. It was fabulous. Uh, we, uh, uh, and I have a
1: story, too, about that. I've got a story about everything. But <coughs> anyway, uh, uh, we had a problem in that Teresa is from Japan. Her dad is in the Navy and married a Japanese woman. He has few relatives. I'm from mid-Michigan, industrial mid-Michigan. Okay, I have a billion relatives. We were gonna get married in Michigan. Had we done that, my side of the aisle would've been full, hers would've been empty. What do we do? We were discussing that problem, and Phyllis Salmons, who was our physics teacher, the teacher who was teaching physics in the class that we got together in, uh, she came up with the answer. She said, what you do is have it here during homecoming, then Mr. Riddle can attend, and then uh, you can have alumni on both sides of the aisle. And you can have faculty and administrators on both sides of the aisle. And it worked out perfectly. It was it was fabulous. Uh, now, at the last minute, there was an individual at the university who felt that alumni relations had gone over this person's head to book the atrium for us and told alumni relations that we couldn't have the atrium because it's already been booked for us. See, nice catch-22 there. and. Tom Arnold, who was the alumni relations director, called me. I was up in Michigan. He called me, and he said, there's nothing I can do about this. It's out of my hands. You can't fix it. I said, oh, I can fix it. Went and got my little black book where I had my good numbers, and I flipped through, and I got General Tallman's desk number. And I called General Tallman at his desk. And he answered, and I said, hi, it's Wes Olszewski. And he, s- he said, oh, Wes, I can't make the wedding. He says, I'm so sorry. They're sending my buns out to Prescott, and you know I'm not going to be able to make the wedding. I said, well, that's okay. I said, we have a problem what's the problem? And I told him about this little catch-22, and he said, you're kidding. Said, no, sir, that's, that's what they're telling me. And they said, it's out of alumni relations hands, there's nothing can be done. And he said, somebody will call you back in about 15 minutes. So I said, OK, and I said, good talking to you, sir. He says, good talking to you, and hung up. And about 10 minutes later, I got a call from this person's student assistant saying, we could do whatever we wanted. And I said, well, is that person in the office? And she said, yes. I said, put him on the phone on the phone. I said, you know, this is Wes Olszewski. I understand, you know, our problem with the atrium has been solved. And the person said, yes, you can do whatever you want. And I said, yeah, and don't you forget it. <laughs> hung up the phone. It's good to be an alumnus.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so uh, you have an excellent story of how you met your wife, Teresa. Uh, but I hear you like telling this story, so let me have it. The story is, uh, it was an Avion party.
1: Uh, and I'm not a party Oh, party! guy! You know, I don't smoke, I don't drink, and you know, it's just parties are, okay, they're gatherings of loud people, okay, fine. But this was an avion party. So I went, and a friend of mine, Joe Elm, who was also an avion staffer, had gotten this little freshman girl named Teresa Anderson to come to this party. He promised her that she'd get to meet the guy who drew the cartoon strip. Now, I'd been doing the cartoon strip for about eight years at that point. Okay, so everybody read Clyde Morris. That's, you know, everybody knew Clyde Morris. They all thought they knew me, but they didn't recognize me on campus for beans. It's a good thing to be a cartoonist. Nobody recognizes you. So I go to this party and Joe comes up and he's got this girl and he says, Wes, this is Teresa. He says, she's she's Japanese. I said, you're Japanese? And she said, yeah. And I said, you know, I'm still a little pissed off about the Arizona. And <laughs> she didn't know what to say. She was like, uh, uh, and she says, well, I'm sorry. I said, oh, that's okay. And uh, so just then, there was an Avion photographer behind us. And he said, hey, you guys. And I turned around, and he shot a picture. And then he says, now put your heads together. We put our heads together. He shot a second picture. Kay. Now, I had a different girlfriend at the time. All right? So this was, for me, it was meeting a reader. And in those days, riddle freshman girls didn't stay around very long. They were usually gone after a semester or two. So I went back home after that. And back into you know, my house. And the next morning, Sunday morning, I went into the avion office. And I said, you know, have you got those two pictures? And the photographer says, yeah, I just took them out of the soup. They're over here drying. He says, take them both. I said, I'll just take one. Because if my girlfriend had found that picture, she would have done something awful to me. She was Cuban. She would have done something awful to me. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> I took the picture and I hid it inside one of my uh, Great Lakes books. So two years later, we get together. And uh, we were engaged uh, three days after our first date. I just looked at her and I said, we're going to end up married, aren't we? And she said, yeah. She says, as a matter of fact, I'm taking you up to Jacksonville to meet my dad on Thursday. That was it. Okay, I was going to be a married man. Ta-da! So no big, you know, formal thing or anything. It's just, we're going to be married. Okay. And, and now, you know, 32 years later, we're still married. Anyhow, uh, I didn't know it. But Teresa went up right after me, after I left, and she got the other picture. So when we're moving our stuff in together, we're going through pictures. And I said, hey, I've got this picture. And she says, no, you don't. There was only one. I said, I'm sure I've got it. And I started searching through my stuff. I said, it's it's a different picture. I'll be darned. So I got one picture. She got the other one.
0: That's incredible. Uh, So you recently published your first piece of fiction, uh, Invisible Evil, in November last year. Uh, But you actually had this novel in your back pocket, so to speak, for quite a long time. Uh, Can you tell me about uh, how you came up with the story for that book and what it took to finally publish it?
1: Yeah, um, Invisible Evil is an aviation spy thriller is what they like to call it, what the publisher wants to call it. Remember, uh, authors don't get to title things. We don't get to cover things. And we don't get to promote things. The people who actually are good at that do that, okay? My six book series on space flight proves that I'm not good at covers and titling and stuff, okay? because it's selling like a snail until they're recovering it. So Uh, Invisible Evil uh, actually came from uh, meeting an an alumni affair here that went on where we were all together at a dinner or something, and a a former roommate of mine who's a very paranoid guy uh, came and saw me there, and I happened to be wearing a suit with a vest. And since I'm living in Washington, D.C., and I'm wearing a suit with a vest, he's convinced that I'm a fed of some sort so he says let's go down and walk by the beach and you can tell me what's going on so i went walking by the beach with him. I said, why are we down by the beach i can't even hear myself he says i need the white noise because you know the listening devices are everywhere these guys are listening to everything you do he says come on tell me all the secret stuff you're into and all this covert stuff I said, i'm not doing anything i said i'm working at kmart for crying out loud busting shoplifters until i get my cfi come on oh yeah yeah right right that's a that's a good excuse you know and so from that uh i kind of conjured up this this little and we all, what about you know that would be kind of interesting if we did this in aviation or if there was this group that nobody ever heard of but they actually thought they had heard of they there's no name for them and there's no clue and you need somebody to go find out about that and so I started writing this book now my wife had been bugging me for years uh, I wrote my first nonfiction book in my senior year here at Riddle so I'd been writing books for a long time and about 1998 uh, she convinced me to sit down and write some fiction. I was corporate flying, spending a lot of time in hotel rooms, sat down to write the fiction. And uh, that's where it came out. I had it in my back pocket since then.
0: So your uh, nonfiction is regarded for its high level of detail, and that seems to have translated now to your new book as well. Uh, You take the reader inside of a lot of aircraft in this book. Uh, One reviewer wrote that reading it felt like they had been in a classroom and you had been teaching them how to fly Saab. How do you get that kind of detail about so many types of planes?
1: Flying them. (laughs) that's that's how you get it Uh, that's uh, Falcon 10 is in there I'm a Falcon 10 pilot uh, or I was a Falcon 10 pilot Uh, I flew the Saab and uh, I did some training in uh, an A340 and so I mixed all those things in and uh, got that detail and put it into the book and and the aviation part is sort of like a a little train that the whole story rides upon
0: so what is uh, how is your process different writing this novel from how you write nonfiction?
1: oh way different uh, in a novel, you can just free-think through it. Whatever you can imagine, uh, you know, it's, uh, sometimes I'm in the shower you know, washing my hair going, whoa, wait, this would be really cool if I put that in the novel. I'll put that in the novel. And, you know, that's the way it goes. Or, or you're bored to death in a hotel room and you go for a walk in a park and you look around and you say, this would be a good spot for a murder. I'll well, put that right here and this is right here and that's right there. Oh, great. And you can just free-think through it. Writing nonfiction is really a lot more painstaking and time-consuming because you find... One question, you go to it, you solve it, and then you cross-check it to make sure it's right. But when the cross-checking, you'll come across five or six more questions. And you have to go and answer those because the reader's going to want to know those. If I wanted to know them, the reader wants to know them. And you've got to cross-check all of those. And sometimes it's, it's a paragraph or a half a paragraph at a time to get going on it. And it's a long way to 50,000 words, I can tell you that much.
0: So you've got uh, something like 600 hours in a Falcon 20, and I get the sense that you really love Falcon Jets. Yes. Tell, tell me why. Um,
1: my first job in aviation it was my first summer out of school. I, I went to work at National Car Rental at MBS International Airport, and I uh, got into a hassle with the woman whose dad owned the company that, you know, she yelled at me for something I didn't do, so I quit. See you later. And I walked across the field to the FBO to see if they had something for me. And it turned out that the woman who was a receptionist was my 11th grade girlfriend's mom. And she liked me a lot more than she liked her. So uh, she sent me into the Hangar Ramrods office. They had a job for me, and I started a week later. And that was in a Falcon jet service center. And that's the first time I got to walk around out close to those jets and see them and got some lessons in what they were made for uh, and made of. Year, or a year and a half later, I was had to get out of school because I ran out of money, and I went there, and I got a job as the hangar rat, just the guy who, you know, uh, whatever's empty, you fill it, whatever's full, empty it, everything else, paint yellow. That was the job. And doing that, I washed a lot of aircraft, and I, they had me dropping panels and stuff. And so I, I did that, and then in 1985, summer of 85, I needed a job. They hired me on as a mechanic working under the shop certificate to do the first uh, D-check ever done on a Falcon 20. And those aircraft are built like tanks, and you don't realize how well they're built until you have one next to a, a different type of, air, different brand of aircraft, and you can wrap on the wings of each one and see which one is different, or until you've seen them with the skins off.
0: All right. Well, uh, it's time for our lightning round. Uh, I'm going to give you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, are you ready for this?
1: I was told there'd be no math. No.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, uh, there will be 5 questions. That's the limit of the that's math. The math. Just knowing that there's okay, 5. All right. all right. Uh and you're going to give me 5 answers. So hopefully that And they have
1: to be short answers. I can't like go Yeah, on. yeah, that's why. I can't do ADHD
0: on you, right? No, no, that's why it's called a lightning round. Okay. All right. Uh, are you ready? Yeah, here comes the thunder. Go ahead. All right, great. Let's go. Uh you can fly any plane ever made from anywhere to anywhere. What do you choose? 4. 4? Uh, oh, that is that the, the That's, that's oh, my husband? <laughs> No? Five minus one is five. Oh, I was, I was, okay. Okay. Yeah. okay.
1: So I can fly any aircraft anywhere. for, And uh, what do I say? C. Always pick C.
0: Okay. All right. All good. Well, we we'll move I'm on. I'm never good that.
1: at multiple choice tests. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, would, uh, I would either fly the, the Falcon 10 mm-hmm. or the King Air 200. The King Air 200 is the, the most wonderful flying turboprop you've ever put your hands on. You can load it up with as much cocaine as you want, and it'll go wherever you want. So that's why you have to chain the props when you park them down here. Otherwise, the smugglers will steal them.
0: So presumably you'd fly from Columbia to Texas.
1: Yeah, but I worked my way through college at Kmart. So if I had done that, I'd gotten through a lot quicker.
0: Oh, sure. (laughs) If you could uh, read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be?
1: Uh, hmm. Dwight Boyer's uh, book, uh, Ships and Men of the Great Lakes.
0: You, un- you have quite a fascination with the Great Lakes. You've written a lot of your books about uh, Great Lakes. Yeah, 18 rice. of them. Yeah, what, oh, why?
1: I'm from up there. Yeah. And as a little kid, uh, I remember going up in the lake and seeing the big lake boats out on the horizon. And uh, after the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, sank, and that song came out, uh, and I have a good Gordon Lightfoot story, but we won't ha- go into it now. Uh, I was just fascinated with what these boats, they call ships boats on the lakes, by the way, what these boats were all about. And so I started Buying books and researching them.
0: All right. Uh, we slowed down the lightning round. Sorry, that was my bad. That's okay. Uh, which fictional cat would win in a three-way fight? Garfield, Heathcliff, or Hobbs from Calvin and Hobbes?
1: Oh, definitely Hobbes. Yeah. Definitely Hobbs, yeah.
0: Yeah. He's That's actually yeah. a tiger, so he's yeah. a little bit cheating. Yeah, well, I know, but
1: Garfield would get his throat torn out, so
0: yeah, no problem. Hobbs, definitely All awesome. right. uh, What's on your ideal grilled cheese sandwich?
1: I don't eat grilled cheese sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good answer. All right if you were an ant and maybe even if you were Clyde himself what would be your biggest fear
1: uh sneakers they cover a lot of territory and they're hard to run out from under
0: absolutely all right thanks very much Wes uh and our secret studio audience as well for joining us for our first ever talent talks podcast the talent talks podcast is a production of wicked radio and the Embry-Riddle office of alumni engagement we're coming at you from the Maury Hersani Student Union at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in sunny Daytona Beach, Florida. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.